Welcome to the new 44 podcast. My name is Tom Abbott, partner of strategy at 44 Communications. With the results of the recent election still fresh in our minds, we wanted to know are there lessons for internal communicators in what unfolded? We recently spoke to Dr. Mark Shanahan, Associate Professor in Political Communications at Reading University. Before entering academia, Mark spent more than 25 years as a journalist and business communicator. Hello, I'm Mark Shanahan. I am the Head of Politics and International Relations at the University of Reading. Um, Mark, we're just coming to the end of uh, what's been, I think for many commentators, a very interesting winter election. What are your sort of takeaways from what you've seen over the last sort of four weeks of campaigning? This is the first time we've really had a post-truth election where honesty seems to have largely gone out the window as all of the parties canvass really, really hard to get as many votes as they possibly can. Uh, it's been an election where truth probably has been the victim, uh, coming very much in a distant second place to the soundbite, to the small slogan, whether it be the Conservatives just get Brexit done or their oven-ready deal, or whether it's uh, Jeremy Corbyn going back to his past slogan of for the many, not the few, because he doesn't really seem to have had much of a good message this time round, or to the Liberal Democrats with their revoke Article 50 messages. They are very surface level, they are sound bites. Largely, uh, they're not backed up by deep and well thought out policy. But perhaps it's, for me, what has mattered most of all is this has been the election where expert opinion has largely been forgotten. And it's been built around a few large or larger than life characters who have turned politics into entertainment. This is something that has been developing for some time. You can go back to the election of Trump, uh, the Brexit win. You can look at what happened in France with Macron and that sudden, uh, you know, the rise of um, that uh, the vote there. What do you think the business leaders need to think about when it comes to this surge of populism that we're seeing? Populism can be quite dangerous. It is surface level. It is played often in terms of the last conversation that you've had, the last interview you've listened to on the television, and doesn't go deep into the detail. Politicians can largely walk away from any statement they've made. It's very, very different from business leaders. Uh, business and running a business is not about getting the headline in the newspaper that becomes tomorrow's bin liner. It's about going in day after day after day and still being seen as reputable, still being seen as credible, still being seen as believable. Something that largely has gone out of politics through this rise of uh, a very thin veneer populism. Now, in business, nobody can really afford to be like that. It's about being an authentic personality, about living your brand, living your values, and making those values that uh, your stakeholders, be they your staff, your customers, even the analysts who are uh, helping to define your share price, can live with. Mm. And are there particular things you think that leaders or communicators in business need to think about around a post-truth world? Um, particularly in that sense of you know everything's every statement is questioned, every truth is is undermined, every falsehood becomes the truth. Um, how do you think that might play out with employ with employee relations or the way that uh, leaders communicate to their companies? It's about creating a common understanding of what the truth actually is. Uh, 
Is there an objective truth? It's very difficult to say in this age. Everybody has their own version of events, but you want your version of, event, of events to be clean, to be honest, and to be something that you can live by. And for communicators, that means having a single version of the truth that everybody is bought into right across the range of stakeholders. So you can't give out one message to your customers another message to the analysts and they'd be saying something totally different within your organization and do you think though that sort of that public narrative that public political discourse is that set for the foreseeable or do you think that's going there will be a push against it and we'll recover to something else it's really interesting i've been talking to colleagues here at uh, the university of reading and what we uh, acknowledge very clearly is that particularly in the uk uh, we're not a country that does revolutions. Uh, the last time we had a revolution was back in the 1600s. And while it was glorious then, it's been a very long time since we've had that kind of massive change in the way that we run this country. We're an incremental country. Change happens gradually, largely by consensus through the system of government that we have, which is a representative democracy, where we elect uh, our MPs to act on our best behalf. Um, our MPs have not covered themselves in glory in the last few years. And I suspect after this election, people will be questioning what politicians are there to do. We've had this dipping our toe into direct democracy through the referendum in 2016. Now, actually, our two systems of representative democracy and direct democracy don't really match and mix very well. And uh, we had three and a half years uh, consequence of that leading up to this 2019 election. Now, I suspect what we are looking at is probably a change in the generation now of people who are be becoming active in politics. And that is small p politics, not just our national institutions of parliament and the rest. This is people being cause driven around areas such as the climate, um, around the way that we manage the economics of this country, about what we want our future to be. Um, our main parties over the 2019 election showed themselves to have moved considerably to the right in the case of the Conservative Party and also to the left in the case of Labour. That's left a lot of people feeling quite disenfranchised in the middle. I think there will be much more scope for localism in terms of people moving forward. There will be local movements that may well be based around businesses or other organisations geographically where they live or where people tend to group together. Some of these groups are electronic, they're uh, on the internet somewhere, of common interests. Uh, I suspect our party system in the way that it operates now won't last hugely much longer. Do you think there's... Do you think that shift to um, localism and individuals getting far more involved in um, cause-based um, political activity, do you think that represents a challenge or an opportunity for businesses and industry? I think it is a huge opportunity for businesses and industry and particularly the biggest areas that we look at that people on the doorsteps have responded to in this election beyond Brexit are the NHS and around climate change and the, the supposed climate emergency. 
These are issues that really matter. Uh, the NHS in the UK, which has so many tentacles into businesses all across the country, is a totem that we hold up. It's an institution that the country holds dear even though it has not been at the top of its game for a long time and has been politicised from both sides and has become something of a football. But people really care about health and social care in this country. Now, this is a massive opportunity for business, not uh, for us to sell the NHS off wholesale to the Americans, um, but... The NHS uses hundreds of thousands of businesses across the country in many, many different ways. Those that can be seen to be part of a virtuous circle, perhaps rather than a negative circle, have real opportunity here and will get the support of the wider population. On the side of climate change, uh, as the Green Party, of course, would say, there is no planet B. We can't afford to continue doing what we're doing uh, for the foreseeable future and not expect radical uh, systemic change uh, in the way that we live our lives. Again, there is massive, massive opportunity. This is not something that business should fear, unless perhaps you, you, your business is coal mining. Um, it's something that business has to embrace because you can almost guarantee that your customers and most certainly your staff will be on board for some kind of a green journey. Because employees are not going to leave their causes at the door when they walk into the office. Employees don't leave their causes at the door. Your employees have a huge hinterland. They have a much wider life than the eight, nine, ten hours a day that they spend with you. Make those eight, nine, ten hours a day align with some of their beliefs. Um, maybe just manage their little their beliefs a little bit towards your corporate culture. When you get that alignment, you're getting very, very involved, engaged, and productive people. There was a lot of talk, um, uh, particularly around um, the Brexit vote and the election of Trump, around the effect of echo chambers, uh, particularly around social media, people only hearing opinions that reinforced their own sense and not being challenged around other, um, other ideas. Do you think that has an implication uh, for the way that organisations think about employee engagement or internal comms? It's a really interesting one, but uh, it's very hard to burst people's bubbles. And a lot of people will see social media as something that they do outside work. And I'm not sure that organisations should be mirroring the experience that people have outside work. So whether that be uh, through Instagram or Facebook or whatever. But there are real instances and opportunities where organisations can have a voice and should have a voice and that voice should resonate with employees in a way that employees are comfortable to engage with it. Uh, I started a very long time ago before my academic career in corporate communications where we produced newsletters and it was transmission communication, you shoved it out, you ticked the box, there was a nice picture of the CEO on the front and that was job done. Actually moving into a world of engagement has been a much longer process since the 1980s coming through where it is not about transmission, it is about working with. 
and creating the opportunities for people to share views, to feel valued because their views are not only listened to but acted upon. Now, if organisations can crack that in the digital age, it's going to put them well ahead of the many, many organisations who still think that social media and electronic communication is just the modern version of that newsletter with the CEO's picture on the front. Do you think there's a risk, though, that we all, that in, do, in sort of mirroring some of those things, that we all drift the same group think and we perhaps the effective echo chambers actually undermines diversity of thought, if not other, you know, other areas of diversity. That's a really, really interesting point. And I guess my take on it would be that if people see that their thoughts are listened to and acted on, and that acting on it might just be challenging it and saying, no, this isn't right, and the reason it isn't right is X, Y, and Z. But engaging in that conversation and making, fe making people feel that their view is valued and to give the opportunity for that view to be shared, to be argued about, to be built upon, and for a more holistic style of communication to emerge. I think there is real value in that. Yes, I do take the point about the echo chambers. We don't want everybody moving into a, a Janus-like groupthink environment. Uh, it didn't work very well for America in the 1960s, which is where this concept emerged from. Um, and people don't think the same. We cannot assume that they're going to think the same, nor should we try and force them into that. Uh, but maybe what organisations should be uh, a little bit cleverer at is acknowledging that these bubbles exist and maybe finding ways just occasionally to prick them. Hmm. So we, 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 I think uh, I'd, it'd be fair to say we started this conversation on the premise that a lot of what we're seeing in terms of post-truth, populist um, politics is not necessarily a good thing. But are there lessons you think we should be learning from the likes of Trump and Johnson and perhaps cast the net wider to Putin in Russia as well? Are there things that they are doing that you think actually, from a communications perspective, that there is some value in that? If you look at Trump, and, and Trump is someone that I've written about quite a lot, so it's, uh, I was involved in a book last year um, the Trump presidency from campaign trail to the world stage. And we looked at different aspects of the president through there. And what emerged really, really clearly were two things. And the first was that he knew his brand. His brand had been honed through 15 years of appearing in people's living rooms on a weekly basis through The Apprentice and The Celebrity Apprentice. So that kind of sloganizing that we see in politics. You can take that back to Donald Trump with you're fired. Everybody knew what Trump was. The image and the brand Trump is actually very different from the reality of the man and his business empire. In the election cycle, he was wonderful about getting his story out first and making himself the story. So getting ahead of the news agenda. Now, in the case of Trump, it was generally by tweeting something really awful very early in the morning and this was what he did when there were 16 other Republican candidates out there so he became the story and all of the oxygen of publicity was sucked away from the other candidates all they could do was respond to his story he carried this through uh, when he became the candidate and was up against Hillary Clinton again he was always first to the punch what I've also learned from Trump, from Johnson, and very much from Putin, 
is something that I wouldn't ask businesses to ape. Each of those uses attack as the best form of defence. Everything becomes a zero-sum game where there has to be a winner and a loser and they are determined to be the winner. Now the consequence of that is that truth suffers and disappears largely from the argument. So if businesses want to learn something from modern populism uh, that is actually going to benefit them long term, it's don't negate the value of the truth. It will have a short-term impact. It might actually bring you a short-term gain, but in the end it drives cynicism. And in politics that means eventually driving voters away from you. In business, it probably means that another business wins. Mm. And where do you think, if you know, you cast your eye forward another election cycle, what do you think the characteristics will be? We'll be in a post-Brexit world by then. What do you think the kind of characteristics of political discourse will be at that point? I'm hoping that the centre re-emerges. Uh, we're not in the UK a country that does polemic extremism well. Uh, I think there will be a short-term impact. I think populism is probably at its peak now and already in some other countries, particularly in Western Europe, uh, we are beginning to see changes where the populists are being put back in their box a little bit. You look at Italy as one example recently, uh, where there is a little bit of a change and a resurgence of liberal thought. Um, looking geopolitically, the model of neoliberal capitalism is most certainly under threat, but perhaps the greatest threat of that is the, the rise of China and the way that is working. Our own politics in the UK... Uh, we won't tolerate extremism for very long. We don't do revolutions, as I've said before, but I think by the next cycle, I would suspect that the leaders of the parties who took us into the 2019 election will be more footnotes in history rather than the Churchills, the Attlees, the Thatchers and the Blairs of the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.